1: Just a quick note, this episode includes outdated language that is offensive. Hey Nick, can you describe for our listeners the video that I'm showing you right now?
2: Yeah, so you've got people picketing in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And they look like sort of clean-cut people. They're well-groomed. And they also have signs. Signs that say things like, Sexual preference is irrelevant to employment. And homosexual citizens want equal treatment as human beings. But it's kind of eerie, Hannah, because nobody's saying anything. There's no chanting. There's no yelling.
1: Yeah, this is a silent protest. The group protesting is part of the Mattachine Society. The founder and leader of the silent protest is that guy wearing the suit and the tie with the pocket square talking to a reporter. That's Frank Kameny.
3: I have lived for uh, eight months on 20 cents worth of food a day when I had the 20 cents. This was at a time when people in my profession were in higher demand than they had been in all of human history. And I could not get a job specifically because of homosexuality. Frank Kameny was very rare in his fighting back against the federal government and his being fired from his job. What usually happened when a homosexual, as we were all called, was fired from his job or her job is that that person would uh, sort of slink off into silence and hope that nobody would find out, hope that it could be kept as quiet as possible. Frank Kameny refused to be quiet, and on top of his refusing to be quiet himself, he encouraged other. Homosexuals to protest their firing.
1: Yes, and I am not alone. I know many people who have done the same. I've
0: seen careers ruined, uh, lives destroyed for no other reason. These were
3: people with a great deal to offer to society, simply because society uh, is prejudiced against them and will not allow them equality of opportunity.
1: This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today we are talking about something called the Lavender Scare. This was a time when the federal government investigated, persecuted, and fired thousands of LGBTQ plus employees, calling them security risks and threats to the country. They are
3: enemies. They are not Americans. Yeah,
1: beat nicks to to homosexuals.
4: They're communists. They're communists.
1: But this moral panic had the unintended effect of fueling the gay rights movement, and it paved the way for federal protections for LGBTQ plus employees.
3: The Lavender Scare actually began in the late 1940s.
1: This is Dr. Lillian Faderman.
3: I'm a historian. I'm uh, most interested in lesbian history, women's history and LGBTQ history. Her latest book was published
1: in 2022. It's called Women, the American History of an Idea.
3: The Red Scare. It was a period of paranoia when witch-hunting of so-called communists began. The world is
4: divided into two factions. On the one side, the forces of freedom. On the
3: other, the forces
4: of communism.
3: In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist,
2: we take his word for it. But there are other communists who don't show
1: their real faces, who work more silently
3: And eventually it lapped over into witch-hunting of homosexuals, as we were all called at that time, whether we were lesbian or gay or bisexual or trans, which was not a a term at that time, transgender. And these same kind of witch-hunting that was applied to suspected communists was also applied to suspected homosexuals, first on the federal level, and then in various states, and then uh, among private employers as well.
2: Okay, so we've mentioned the Red Scare before on the show. That was the hysteria that happened during the Cold War around fears of communism spreading in the United States. So red and Red Scare, that refers to the color of the Soviet flag and communist allegiance. But What's the meaning behind the Lavender Scare?
4: Well, it wasn't called that at the time. It's it's a term historians have used since, um, only starting in the, in the 90s when people like myself and other historians started uh, looking at the phenomenon.
1: This is David Johnson. He wrote the definitive book on the Lavender Scare, and there's a 2017 PBS documentary based on this book.
4: But Lavender has has long been associated with homosexuality. There are different theories about why that is. Uh, some link it back to as far back as the ancient Greeks, That's that uh, the lesbian poet Sappho associated violet with homosexuality. The other explanation is that uh, lavender is a mixture of colors, right? It's red and blue or pink and blue. So it's like male, female colors. And homosexuality is you know often associated with with some sort of uh, you know gender inversion, but it, it was fairly widely known in the fifties that yeah, you know, lavender. They, they talked about the lavender lads in the State Department. The Cold War is seen as a as a moral crusade, right, against atheistic communism. That's that's an attack on the family, and you know, gay people, of course, are also seen as you know immoral and uh, and anti-family. There's that sort of moral connection in the popular imagination. They're also both seen as, as uh, psychologically disturbed. McCarthy talks about anyone who's attracted to communism, there must be something wrong with him. They must be mentally twisted in some way.
1: Senator Joseph McCarthy played a big role in this moral crusade. We're going to talk more about Joseph McCarthy in a bit. But this attitude wasn't coming out of left field bigotry had permeated almost every facet of American society. If someone was not white, Protestant, part of a nuclear family, middle to upper class or straight, then they were viewed as the other and faced all kinds of discrimination. Here's Dr. Lillian Federman again.
3: The LGBTQ community really suffered great threats and great discrimination to the churches without exception, virtually. We were all sinners to the medical health profession. We were all crazies until 1973. Homosexuality was considered a mental disorder and was in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which was virtually the Bible of uh, mental health professionals. Licensed doctors
1: tried to, quote, cure patients with everything from electroshock therapy to lobotomies. The stakes were just that high, so people lived double lives. They didn't
3: want to risk the exposure. To the federal government, we were all subversives. We were um, uh, open to blackmail and we would give away federal secrets and we weren't uh, loyal to this country because of that.
2: Wait, so the government justified the persecution of gay federal employees because Russians or communists could blackmail them? Is that where this is headed?
3: That was the idea. That was the crux of the government's argument. If you were a homosexual, it was against the law in every single state of the union, and you would be susceptible to blackmail by the Reds, and you would give away the secrets of the federal government. This was true even if they were secretaries working in a federal job or truck drivers working for the federal government. They were still considered threats to the safety of the country, which was nonsense, of course. There was never any evidence that a homosexual was blackmailed into giving up federal secrets.
1: And here's where we come back to Joseph McCarthy. He was a Republican senator from Wisconsin who had been flying under the radar after taking office in 1946. But then he gave a speech that put him right in the national spotlight.
4: His kind of rise to power is when he makes a claim at a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia in February 1950. He has a list of 205 card-carrying communists currently working in the State Department with the knowledge of the Secretary of State.
1: The president's
4: own loyalty board found 284 unfit for service. He said, we only discharged 79. And we at that time called upon the president, the secretary of state,
3: to tell us who the 205 were and why they were kept on.
4: And that captures the media attention. They want, they want to see the list and they want to know who's on this list. Was there
2: any truth in McCarthy's claims?
1: Not according to the person actually in charge of the State Department at the time.
4: The secretary of state, Dean Acheson, he's asked about this. He says, oh, no, no communists here in the State Department haven't fired any, haven't found any. It's all good. Nothing to see here.
1: Now, in the meantime, the press was also pushing Joseph McCarthy to give more details about the 205 people on the list.
3: Now, do you still maintain, in view of what you've learned since, that there are 205 or any similar number of communists working in the State Department today? First, Mr. Linden, let's get our figures straight.
1: But McCarthy's claims kept shifting.
3: Unfortunately, I cannot get the names, but I do have in my hand the names of 57 individuals who were either communists or who were certainly loyal to the Communist Party.
4: First there's 205, then there's 87, later there's 57, and first they're card-carrying communists, and then later they're loyalty risks or security risks. You know, the, the language keeps changing.
1: A week after McCarthy's speech in Wheeling, Secretary of State Acheson attended a hearing on Capitol Hill. He was officially there to talk about the budget but a senior senator from New Hampshire named Stiles Bridges started asking questions, mainly about security risks. These questions led Atchison to eventually reveal some things.
4: He admits that, well, we have fired 202 people we consider to be security risks. And then his aide finally admits, well, and, and almost half of those, 91 of them, were homosexuals. And... It's that revelation really that sets off the lavender scare. The reaction could have been oh great you know you found these people and you got rid of them you know right but that's not how a moral panic works. People were like, well where did those 91 go did they did they go to other government agencies and how many of these homosexuals are working in the Department of Commerce and 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 why were they hired to begin with in the State Department? So it seems to corroborate McCarthy's otherwise, Groundless charges.
2: So, in other words, because neither government officials nor the public were satisfied with the firings, because these potential threats may still be in the government, McCarthy seemed all the more justified in his hunt. So, what did the government do? You had the public up in arms. There is a so called moral panic. I imagine the newspapers are having a field day with this, covering like mad. How does the government respond?
1: The response came from the House of Representatives, in the form of a series of congressional investigations.
2: Well, the Red Scare was known for its congressional investigations.
1: Yes, perhaps best known for those conducted by the House Un-American Activities Committee, or WHOAC.
4: The growing menace of communism arouses the House of Representatives Un-American Activities Committee. Among the well-informed witnesses testifying is J. Edgar Hoover, head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Mr. Hoover speaks with authority on the subject. The Communist Party of the United States is a fifth column, if there ever was one. It is far better organized than were the Nazis
0: in occupied countries prior to their capitulation.
1: HUAC was created in 1938 as a special committee of the U.S. House of Representatives. Its primary mission was to look into fascist and communist activity in the United States. And this committee used some fairly ruthless tactics. If a witness didn't comply or answer questions, they could be found in contempt of Congress and sent to jail. People who were asked to testify before HUAC often refused, taking the Fifth Amendment and staying silent, which is a constitutional right, by the way. But this was often looked upon as an admission of guilt. What do you mean by that? Are you now a member of the Congress? Would you like Party? to come to the ballot box when I vote?
0: and take off the ballot and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question.
4: You are directed to answer the question.
0: I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget
4: it. I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question whether, if he gave us a truthful answer, he would be supplying information which might be used against him in a criminal
3: proceeding.
1: And taking the Fifth didn't stop their careers or reputations from being left in tatters. Hundreds of people were jailed, Thousands were fired and blacklisted, which, by the way, means a person's name was put on a list of names of people who should not be hired. And there are a lot of well-known people who were affected by this. Lucille Ball, Mm -hmm. W.E.B. Du Bois, Albert Einstein. That's just a few of them. So in 1950, the Senate passed a resolution asking its committee on expenditures to look into how many. And this is the actual quote, Nick homosexuals, or other sex perverts, worked for the federal government. Wow. I should note that although McCarthy is the senator who kicked off the Lavender Scare, at that point he kind of took a back seat. He was on the committees, but a whole new set of lawmakers stepped into the limelight to demand a, quote, pervert purge. And this was not new, and neither was the idea of targeting LGBTQ individuals. In 1947, the U.S. Park Police had what was called the, quote, Sex Perversion Elimination Campaign. Men were arrested if they seemed suspicious. And their personal information was put in a, and again, this is a real quote, pervert
3: file. This 19-year-old serviceman left his girlfriend on the beach to go to a men's room in a park nearby where he knew that he could find a homosexual contact. The men's room was under police surveillance.
1: Everybody gonna hear about this. Like my parents, your parents don't know of this, but your uh,
3: military commander will probably find out
2: about it. All right, let me recap this timeline real quick. World War Two is over. Americans are scared of Russia. There's a suspicion of communists working in the government. McCarthy says he has a list of communists in the government. The connection to gay government workers is made, and this leads to the Senate responding by creating a resolution to look into, quote, employment of homosexuals and other sex perverts in the government. And then these lavender scare hearings began. So what happened?
4: They call in witnesses. Uh, They call in police officers, vice officers, uh, government security officials the head of the CIA, which is then a, a newly formed organization, and ask all of them, are gay people a threat to national security? Are they vulnerable to blackmail? And they all say, absolutely. You know, Yes, 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 gay people are vulnerable to blackmail and therefore a threat to national security.
2: Really? Well, was there any pushback to that claim?
1: Well, the chief counsel of the investigation, his name was Francis Flanagan, He did ask for evidence.
4: Do you have any proof of this? Do you have, yeah, can you give us an example? And nobody could. They couldn't give any examples. Um, They would occasionally give an example of of a gay person who had been blackmailed in terms of uh, money, you know, asking for money. And then the gay person would uh, go to the police and the police would capture the blackmailer and Um, you know, charge them, because that's illegal. Blackmail is illegal. And they would use that as evidence that gay people were vulnerable to blackmail. When in fact, it's really evidence that they're not vulnerable to blackmail, right? Because they did not fall victim to the blackmail scheme.
1: To be clear, during these congressional investigations, evidence was not uncovered that gay federal employees were vulnerable to blackmail. And that did not stop with federal government employees.
4: They they don't have an example of a single American citizen, gay citizen, who has under threat of blackmail has revealed state secrets. And despite the lack of evidence, the main committee, the HUI committee, publishes a report that says definitively that gay people are vulnerable to blackmail, they're a threat to national security. It now has the imprimatur of the the US Congress on it, and, and it seems to be
1: fact. David Johnson pointed out that even though the congressional investigations were started by McCarthy and other Republicans, they ended up being a truly bipartisan effort.
4: No one no one is standing up and saying, you know, this is wrong. Gay people should be able to serve their government. No one is saying that.
1: The politics of the Lavender Scare were not limited to Congress. This period played a big role in the presidential election of 1952.
4: And the Republican... Campaign slogan that year with Eisenhower and Nixon as the two presidential and vice presidential running mates. Their slogan is let's clean house, right? Let's get rid of all of these bad people in Washington, communists, homosexuals, get them out of Washington. Let's clean house. And of course, they win hugely in 1952 against Adlai Stevenson, who is effectively gay baited.
2: David just said gay baited. Can you explain what gay baiting is?
1: It's basically a political tactic where there's an implication that a rival might be gay without providing any proof. There are codes that are used to kind of skirt around it. It's never said outright. Adlai Stevenson was the Democratic nominee for president for the second time.
4: He's considered somewhat of an intellectual egghead. Uh, He's a former State Department uh, official and he was divorced. And the Republicans made a lot about his divorce and you know why was he divorced? You know there were sort of rumors about that you know maybe it was because he was he was gay. Apparently the FBI even spread rumors uh, that he had been arrested on a on a morals charge on a on a sex charge.
2: Wait, the FBI was getting involved? Why would that even happen?
1: Well, the FBI was headed by J Edgar Hoover. Okay. He was a conservative guy, and he used his power to meddle in elections. Now, one outcome of this that you might not expect is that this homophobia being weaponized in politics led to something that we now see all the time.
4: Eisenhower and and Nixon campaigned almost all the time with their wives and sometimes even with their children in the campaign literature. You know, emphasize that they were family men and had pictures of them with their, you know, beautiful wives and children. Or in the cases of the Eisenhowers, they had to trot out their grandchildren to make a contrast with Stevenson, who had no wife. And therefore, there would be, if he were elected, there would be no first lady.
0: Both Pat and I have considered it a privilege
3: to talk, to travel over America, to talk many, many times a day, and to work for your election as president of the United States.
1: Dwight Eisenhower wins big. And one of the first things he did in office in 1953 was pass Executive Order 10450, titled Security Requirements for Government Employment.
4: Which sets up this new uh, security system in the federal government and a whole list of uh, reasons for excluding people from the civil service. And one of them is uh, sexual perversion, which is, you know, perceived as, as uh, you know, homosexuality. And that remains in effect from 1953 until 1975. So every civil servant uh, under the Eisenhower security program is subject to an investigation. This new security system puts everyone under the gun of this uh, this investigative apparatus.
1: And we will hear more about that investigative apparatus and the man who fought against it after the break.
2: But first, there is all sorts of stuff that we cannot include in our episodes because of time that ends up on the cutting room floor. And if you want to know what that stuff is, you should subscribe to our newsletter. It's called Extra Credit. It comes out every two weeks. It's free, and you can sign up at our website, civics101podcast.org. There also we have links to our weekly Civics 101 quiz and a Wordle. So check it out.
1: We're back and we're talking about the Lavender Scare. This was the persecution of LGBTQ plus federal employees by the U.S. government during and in the wake of the McCarthy era. All
2: right, Hannah, you said that Eisenhower issued this executive order, 10450, which directed the heads of federal agencies and the Civil Service Commission to look into federal employees to see if they were security risks. And this is what really kicked things into high gear.
1: Yeah, it did. Government agencies, especially the State Department, immediately ramped up their efforts. They made relationships with other intelligence agencies and worked with local law enforcement to cross-reference their files. They got help with background checks and they were notified when NSA employees were arrested or charged with wrongdoing. Every government employee had to pass some sort of clearance. In the CIA, it was polygraph tests.
4: They would investigate a government employee. Interview their family, roommates, uh, friends, former professors, co-workers, and if they found any sort of suspicious activity, if they found that they knew other people that the government had identified as known homosexuals, they would be under suspicion. If they had been reported to be at gay bars, which were being monitored by the government, you know that would be a clue. Even if they were. If their dress and self-presentation were slightly non-conforming, right, women were, were slightly butch or men were slightly effeminate in their, you know, in their walk or the kind of clothes they wore, that would set up red flags.
1: And when a red flag was raised, like if a fellow employee or manager thought they saw something that was, quote, suspicious, that would lead to a deeper investigation and eventually an interrogation of the suspect.
4: So you would be called in by civil service investigators to a room, you'd have to swear an oath. You weren't allowed to see an attorney or have an attorney present. And usually the first question was, the civil service commission has information that you are a homosexual. What comment do you care to make? And confronted with that, most gay and lesbian civil servants, you know, they would refuse to answer. But then they would, you know, ask more questions. You know, do you know Kate Smith? Do you know John Doe? Do you know these people who the government knew to be known homosexuals? Have you ever been to the Redskins Lounge? Have you ever been to the Chicken Hut, which were known, known gay bars in Washington at the time? And most people, when confronted with these kinds of interrogations, they would confess to something small, just to kind of satisfy, right, the the interrogators. And that would usually be enough, right? Confessing to being at a gay bar, confessing to knowing other gay people.
1: And when someone confessed to something they were asked about, even if it was not true, they were fired, were forced to resign.
3: And if you were fired from a job for homosexuality, it was virtually impossible to Get another one. And this was true not only if you worked for the federal government, but it really it filtered down into uh, all aspects of employment.
1: I think to better describe the fallout from these investigations, it's a good idea to bring back the person we introduced you to at the very beginning of this episode. The person leading that silent protest. Frank Kameny.
2: This is the guy wearing the suit with the pocket square.
1: That's right. He was an astronomer who had studied at Harvard, a super brilliant guy.
4: Right at the beginning of the space race, right, with the Soviet Union, when the United States needs astronomers, government hires Frank Kameny. He's working for the Army Map Service. He's helping the Army create, you know, accurate maps of the globe, particularly the Soviet Union, where we're aiming our ICBM nuclear missiles.
3: But fairly early on they did a uh, a background check and it was discovered that he was once arrested accused of illegal sexual activity in san francisco and he was fired
4: frank as a you know he's a nerdy scientist he doesn't understand why the government is interested in his sex life you know he as a scientist he thinks rationally and about facts and he knows this has nothing to do with his ability to do his job. And so he kind of thinks it's a mistake. He doesn't know about this whole Lavender Scare that had started in 1950. He knows, knows nothing about it. So he fights it. How did he fight it?
1: He fought it administratively within the appeals process for the civil service.
4: First, he writes all kinds of letters to civil service and writes to the president and writes to members of Congress.
1: For years, Frank tried every avenue available to appeal his termination. Each appeal was rejected. So Frank took it to the courts. He personally drafted up the legal paperwork, a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court declined to hear the case.
4: At this point, he, he's literally unemployable because in 1950s, you know, Cold War America, if you have a PhD in astronomy, The government is pretty much where you're going to work for, um, or or some government contractor where you need a security clearance. And he couldn't get such a job. He's almost starving to death as he struggles with the government.
3: He was living on, as he said, frankfurters and uh, boiled eggs, which were cheap, and that was his diet. Sounds awful.
2: Did he ever get his job
4: back?
1: No, he never did. David actually described seeing Frank near the end of his life.
4: You know, he's kind of disheveled and, you know, his teeth are bad. He doesn't really look very good. And part of that is because, you know, he was impoverished for much of his life because he literally couldn't find a job.
2: How many people lost their jobs during the Lavender Scare?
4: Well, we'll never know definitively. We have some partial figures. The State Department alone, which is kind of where the controversy began and, and was most intense. State Department officials admitted in the 1960s to firing 1,400 suspected gay men and lesbians. And that's just the State Department. So extrapolating from that, there were probably between five and 10,000 people who lost their jobs because of the Lavender Scare. And that doesn't even include, you know, there are people who, who chose not to apply, people who chose not to apply for a, another job or a, or a promotion because, you know, they would be investigated. Uh, doesn't count applicants who were who were denied jobs because they already had figured out they were gay.
1: People ended up switching fields entirely, sometimes getting much lower paid positions because they could not get a job of the same level that they had when they were working for the federal government.
2: You said at the beginning, Hannah, that Frank Kameny helped bring an end to the Lavender Scare, right?
1: He did. Because although all the mechanisms failed Frank, the appeals process, lawmakers, the Supreme Court, he became an activist.
4: And he decides, I'll get other people involved in the struggle. And so he founds the Mattachine Society of of Washington, D.C. They begin a whole new uh, kind of level of activism in the gay community.
3: The Mattachine Society picketed the State Department and got this reaction from Dean Rusk. Well, I understand that we're being picketed by a group uh, of homosexuals.
4: Uh, the uh, policy of the department is that we do not employ homosexuals knowingly. And that if we discover homosexuals in our department, we discharge them. As a department that is concerned with the security of the United
1: States. By 1969, they were winning cases in the federal courts.
4: The federal courts are saying to the civil service, you can't prove a connection between you know, Frank Kameny or anyone else's off-duty conduct as a gay person and their ability to perform their job. You have to stop this.
1: Finally, by 1975, the Civil Service Commission — this was an agency that made sure federal employees were hired based on merit instead of nepotism — changed its policy to reflect the federal court's decision. And back to Frank's activism, by the way. He was inspired by Martin Luther King Jr.'s model of nonviolent civil action.
3: And um, they actually, members of the Mattachine Society in Washington, attended Martin Luther King's march on Washington in 1963 and they actually said among themselves to each other why can't we do this for the gay community why can't we have a march on Washington
4: So when Madison of Washington folks decide to pick it in 1965 it's a very controversial decision it's never been done before they don't know what's going to happen they're they're afraid they're going to be attacked. Certainly some a lot of them are afraid they'll they'll lose their jobs, whether in the government or, or elsewhere.
3: And this was the first time in history that homosexuals, perhaps LGBTQ people, as we would call them now, dared to appear in public holding signs protesting the government's treatment of homosexuals. In 1965, Frank Kameny organized a protest in front of the White House. He organized a protest in front of the State Department, a protest in front of the Pentagon, a protest in Philadelphia in front of the Liberty Bell.
1: That Philadelphia protest became an annual event. Wait, is this this where pride parades come from? It is a precursor to pride parades, but it looked very different. There were no rainbow flags, no floats, no incredibly dressed people. But there was a dress code of sorts.
4: They sort of camouflage themselves in a way. I and mean, a lot of them are they wear sunglasses, which isn't you know, just a, a way of, you know, hiding a little bit. And they're short to to uh, dress up. So the men are wearing suits and, and ties and the women are in, you know, dresses and heels. And that was Partly Frank Kameny's idea is like, we need to, you know, we're claiming we want to be employed by the federal government. We need to look employable. And it's also a sort of, you know, politics of respectability. You know, we don't want to be seen as these crazy radicals.
3: Not only did they have to dress respectably, but they couldn't behave in what uh, the straight world would consider an outrageous manner, and so there was no holding hands, for instance. They had to march single file. There was no chanting. They just had to carry signs that pointed out how unjust it was for the government to discriminate against homosexuals. Frank was a product
1: of his time. And conformity was seen as a way to make gains by being non-threatening. And David Johnson argued that in some ways, this is still true today.
4: Well, I think in some ways the Lavender Scare helps explain why it is someone like Pete Buttigieg that emerges as the first openly gay presidential candidate who's taken seriously. You
2: know, I served under General Dunford, way under General Dunford in Afghanistan.
4: (laughs) Because the Lavender Scare created so much suspicion about gay people, you know, as subversives, as, you know, as, as suspected communists, as, you know, somehow a threat to national security um, and, and to American morality. So it takes a candidate like Pete Buttigieg, who is uh, a veteran, right, of the US military, uh, he's religious. He's married uh, to another man, he now has kids, right, to demonstrate, you know, to, to, <laughs> to skeptical Americans, right, that, that gay people are not, a, are not immoral and they're not a threat and they're not these crazy radicals or communists, right?
2: Rush Limbaugh, to whom the president recently awarded the nation's top civilian honor, Uh, described you as a 37-year-old gay guy, mayor of South Bend, who loves to kiss his husband on the debate stage. Now, there has been bipartisan criticism of him for those remarks. I wanted to give you a chance to respond if you would like to. Well,
4: I love my husband.
2: I'm faithful to my husband. On stage, we usually just go for a hug. Um, But I love him very much. And I'm not going to take lectures on family values from the likes of Rush Limbaugh.
1: Pete Buttigieg, who was appointed by President Biden as Secretary of Transportation, which, by the way, made him the first openly gay cabinet member in U.S. history, has been able to express his love for his husband, Chasen, without being disqualified for public service. And that is a direct result of the LGBTQ movement that Frank helped to build. So what
2: happened to that executive order, Order 10450?
1: Barack Obama officially repealed Executive Order 10450 on his last day in office. Frank Kameny was standing beside him. It doesn't make much sense, but today in America, millions of our fellow citizens wake up and go to work with the awareness that they could lose their job, not because of anything they do or fail to do, but because of who they are. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. that's wrong. We're here to do what
3: we can to make it right.
1: We still do not have federal protections for LGBTQ plus people across the board.
3: There are uh, certainly uh, LGBTQ rights ordinances in various municipalities. Uh, There are states that uh, prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual identification or gender identification, there uh, isn't yet a federal protection for LGBTQ people. Uh, there uh, is a bill, and there, from time to time, the bill keeps popping up in Congress and has never managed to pass, but it, uh, it would assure protections for LGBTQ people on a federal level, but it doesn't yet exist.
1: The Lavender Scare was a dark time in American history, but it also helped to pave the way for the gay liberation movement.
3: I think the Lavender Scare is important for young people to know about because I really believe in the adage that if you don't know about history, you're destined to repeat it. And I think we were beginning to see how easily that can happen with don't say gay bills in, in, uh, Florida and, and Arizona and the censorship of, uh, books that deal with LGBTQ subjects. We could come upon bad times again. And it's important to, to know how bad times were in the past, and to to prepare in case they happen again, and to to take from history an inspiration to know that the good times that young LGBTQ people and our allies enjoyed today didn't always exist. They they came about because there was a long fight for our rights. And if times become bad again, I think people have to take inspiration from the history of the past.
1: This week's episode was produced by Jackie Fulton and Rebecca Lavoie and hosted by me and McCarthy and Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Music in this episode by Bright Arm Orchestra, Circles Nouvelles, Zylo Zyko, Wendy Marchini, Crossier, Gridded, Blue Dot Sessions, Chris Zabriskie, Mary Riddle, Arthur Benson, and Kosp. Don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And if you're looking for the archive, you can find the entire thing and a bunch of other resources at our website, civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.